everybody. Today's episode is a trip down memory lane, and I use the term somewhat deliberately because I'm going to be joined by two of my oldest friends, Chris and Roy, from when I was growing up in and around New Haven in the 1980s. I go back with these two guys, specifically to around 1984, 1985. As you'll hear, we're a little confused about the dates. It's been a long time. But these two guys, on one very specific day in 1985, unlocked a whole world of friendship and music and books and opened up a pathway to other friendships that really changed my life. There really is one movie and one afternoon with these two people that I can really point to and I can say, wow, prior to that, my life was like this. After that, my life was like that. And the that was much, much preferential. So that one day in 1985 is linked to a movie. And that's why I thought to do an episode about this movie and to bring on Chris and Roy, the two guys who introduced me to this movie and to so much else. The movie is Pink Floyd's 1972 concert documentary film, Live at Pompeii. And although it's a concert film, there really is no audience aside from the basic film crew. This was filmed at the actual Roman amphitheater in Pompeii, Italy. Despite its somewhat tortured history, there's multiple versions out there. There's a director's cut. There are other cuts that are loaded with other Pink Floyd performances that have nothing to do uh, with the Live at Pompeii concert. The film actually is incredibly influential. Uh, And if you've never seen it before and you can somehow track down a copy, it's worth checking out because a lot of the ways in which the band was filmed, the use of tracking shots, the visible lighting, it's really influential. It's been it's been aped in a bunch of other uh, music videos and concert documentaries over the years. The Beastie Boys did a video that is inspired by this. Uh, David Gilmour has returned to Pompeii, recorded a more recent concert there. So it's a pretty influential music documentary. And it's a very specific look at Pink Floyd just before their lives were about to change because the album Metal was just about to come out, and that's some of the music that they're performing live at Pompeii. And then they were also, at the same time, working on what would become Dark Side of the Moon. So you're catching this band kind of at a crossroads and at a juncture where everything is about to be different in their lives. That's something I really relate to because that's what really took place in my life after watching Live at Pompeii with Chris Chris and Roy. In 1985, I was coming off, I think, my freshman year in high school. I was really kind of as adrift as I could be. I had some friends. I, I had a life at home. I, I, I was working, but I, I never found it very easy fitting into my high school or the town that my mom and I lived in until I met Chris and Roy on this one day. So to lure them into doing this episode, I deployed a little of the Pink Floyd attention to mystery and detail. I asked Chris and Roy for their mailing addresses. I told them to expect something in the mail. I wouldn't tell them what it was. It turns out the DVD is pretty hard to get, so I had to buy DVDs of Live at Pompeii from Germany and have them sent to Chris and Roy. Uh, And when they opened the package, they got a little slip of paper with a URL printed on it. And once they entered the URL into their browsers, it took them to a secret video message that I recorded just for them. So I haven't seen these guys in probably 30 years, although we are in touch on social media. So when they agreed to join me, I was thrilled. I have so much appreciation and respect for these two people. And while this episode or Pink Floyd may or may not speak directly to your high school life or experiences, if you do listen, 
I ask you just to do one favor. Reach out to someone in your life to whom you owe a great deal. Take the time to connect and reminisce with them. I think you'll find it worthwhile. One other program note, you may hear you may hear Chris or myself referred to by various names during this podcast. Uh, you may hear Chris referred to as and. Where does it come from? Of course, it comes from the way that Robert Plant pronounces the word and in the song Stairway to Heaven. There you have it. And I was known as Jason. Roy was, well, he's always been Roy. In fact, we used to summon Roy up whenever we needed or wanted him by calling out his name in what we called the Roy call. This actually works. If you yell out, Roy, he shows up. Try it. Anyway, here is my audio love letter to formative friendships, music, and youth. Enjoy. Yo, what's <laughs> up, man? What's going on? I haven't seen, I don't know yeah. when I last saw Roy. I could probably figure out when I last saw you, but I cannot think when I last saw, he's got his daughter helping him get on the technology. <laughs> Roy, are, are you having a teenager awesome. help you with modern technology, Roy? Yeah, I need it all the time. That's the only way I survive. That is the most perfect. Are you guys that's the most perfect entry point I could possibly imagine. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! How are you, Roy Ginter? I was just yep. saying to Chris, I don't even know when the last time I saw you was. It has to be thirty years. I know it's been forever. It's been forever. You guys look fantastic. Jesus Christ, you guys. Well, we can't see you because you're in the dark, but I think I think if you're not using that as a cloaking tactic, you look pretty much exactly the same too. So the three of us somehow lucked out in the genetic lottery here. I don't know how. <laughs> I'm pretty much the same. <laughs> Mostly, but still look close. Like the eyebrow thing. Yeah. I don't know what that's all about. Like the, you know, the sort of Leonid Brezhnev eyebrow <laughs> look where like, you know, your hey, eyebrow hairs used to be perfectly straight and now... They're stray and squiggly well, you, all around. Well, you don't you I manscape, Chris? Come on. I, well, just a little bit. Just. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, so good to see you guys. It's amazing to see you guys. It, it really is. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, uh, Roy, great. I probably... I'm trying to think when I would have seen you post the 1600 Chapel Street era, if, if ever. I mean... Ah, no, I... Was it Hampshire College? Was that, that was... Did you come up to Hampshire? Oh I did one time. God. And we were playing around in the, in the parking we lot were? doing something. Oh God. I don't know why I remember that. We were in the parking <laughs> lot or in a field at Hampshire just walking around. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much go what going to Hampshire was all about. Yeah. Well, actually, you know what? That makes sense because Chris lived up there for a time during my college years, too. So maybe that's... <laughs> Right. I think that's what it was. I'm sure we did more than walk around the fields. I, I, that's all I recall. You know, it's very selective. Yeah, well, no, we would have had to have hung out at least some because Roy and I were living together in Shootsbury the very early 90s. Right? Yes, so right. Yep. Not, oh, I didn't 90, know that. 91. Not even 91. 89, 89 90. 90. Right. Okay, so. Yeah. And Chris, you lived in the yellow school bus that's for a right. while. And uh, <laughs> I did well, except we, we, we painted it silver and right. purple and black. But <laughs> now was that a, was, Chris, was that an officially permitted residence at the time or did no one care about those things in Shootsbury of 1991 or 1992? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't. So for, we started out with the bus in Wendell, Mass. And then we moved, well, no. Okay. So we, we, 
built it in Windsor, Connecticut. Okay. And then moved it up to Wendell, Mass, and then back to wow. Windsor. It was outstanding. It was a total RV. They really, really did a nice job on it. Did you winter in the bus? Yes, and it was pretty awful at times. <laughs> well, was, it, was it worse than the winter you spent living on your porch, uh, oceanfront uh, in West Haven? And I don't say oceanfront to imply that it was that it was like a luxurious oceanfront. I'm talking about bitter, freezing winds coming off the ocean onto your yep. second floor. So for listeners, as we'll just jump in and this, I'll make sense of this through, you know, recording a brief intro that explains a little bit about who you guys are and what we're here to talk about. But for the listeners, Chris had a entire, I don't know if it was a year or a winter, you'll clarify a lot of these things, but there was, a, I believe it was at least an entire winter where he attempted to live outside his sleep on his porch year round. I don't think you made it through the winter. I think you packed in like maybe around February or something. Is that true? (laughs) That is exactly right. It was two years. It was junior year and senior year. And I made it through the entire year with the exception basically of February-ish. At some point in February, I said, okay, enough. (laughs) There's too much sleet gathered on me in the morning. You know, like slush and spike. I got bit by nine different spiders. I mean, it was... But it was I, I wouldn't take it back. And it was actually I, I liked it. It was free and easy. Yep. This is amazing. This is part of what uh, makes Chris Chris. This is part of what we're going to be discussing today is certainly prior to this afternoon that is uh, so, so important in my mind, in my life. Like I had never met anyone who would do things of this sort. And the two of you guys, for reasons that will become clear as we talk, are so important to that whole story. But yeah, Chris's legendary uh, attempt to sleep out outdoors for the entire winter, which, you know, you were so close. Like, you probably could have hung on for another couple weeks, but I do recall now there were spider bites. Uh, you had quite an encampment. <laughs> I mean, you had sort of a, you had like a multiple tent layering system going on. It, it probably wasn't like 20 below zero, right? I mean, how bad was the winter? No, I mean, you know, usually, usually it's, I mean, it's Long Island Sound. So you got a temperature sink in the, in the sound water. So it was, you know, usually in the thirties or the forties or the twenties or whatever. And I had 455 million pounds of blankets <laughs> on me. And then there was a, a polyethylene sheet over that that was held down by bricks. Then there was the sort of packing crate thing that I had set up to go over my head with the storm flap that could that could flop down right yeah good good engineering yeah absolutely yeah and it was plastic all over that i had everything i need in needed inside the packing crate it was it was good it's good stuff i wish that you had photos of this contraption there are a lot of events in my life for which i wish i had photos yeah not least of which because these days People don't believe that you did a thing unless you have photos. Absolutely. Sure. Right. So I'm in I'm in my karate class. Um, and you know, there's this like fifth degree black belt from Russia <laughs> who comes over. And I start telling him and his assistant about the fact that I was in Moscow right. in 1991 yeah. for the coup. I was there when the Soviet Union fell. And it started to become clear to me after about 10 minutes of telling him the story <laughs> that he didn't believe me. He just didn't believe it. And then he's looking at my face and almost as if to say, you can't possibly sure. be old enough. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. And, you know, I, I had well, no pictures from those days. And all I have are a couple of witnesses that I managed to reconnect with on Facebook recently. It is true that you have made some sort of deal with the devil because you don't look much older than the events that we're going to talk about, which took place in what, 1985? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, remember the summer of 85 when uh, Chris, your parents were away 
for that summer. This is a good place to start. <laughs> so what I remember is that I was up on the the ball fields of Seth G. Haley Middle School, which was just a few blocks from where my mom and I lived at the time. I think I was, I think it was after my first year at West Haven High School. I was a sophomore or maybe it was after my sophomore year. That's why I'm fuzzy on the details, which I also blame the two of you and many of the events of that afternoon on. (laughs) But I'm sure you guys will have a better memory. And while just sort of walking and doing whatever I was doing by myself, which is sort of sort of a funny part of the whole story because that's what most of my social life consisted of at that point. I didn't really have any friends at West Haven High School to speak of. I met you two guys who were up there doing whatever you were doing. You're probably throwing a baseball or something. I had some familiarity with Chris, even though I don't think I'd seen him for quite a while. And then in however we ended up interacting on the ball fields, that then led to me going back with you two guys to Roy's house. And Roy, I guess no one was home in my recollection. No one was really ever home, no. no. <laughs> and we, um, we, we uh, I don't know how this happened, but one, somebody had Pink Floyd live at Pompeii, I presume on VHS. I had a VHS of it. You had a VHS of it. And we prepared, let's say, this is a family podcast, we all have children, so I want to be delicate in how we refer to various events of this time in our life. I will do so very glancingly, but I think everyone understands what we're talking about. We prepared to watch a film of mind-blowing psychedelia. Your brain is a marvel of technology. But when you take drugs, you alter your brain. change thinking patterns. You distort perception. And eventually, your brain just won't be the same. Think about it while you still can. Which was a first for me. And then we watched this film. And um, while I don't have really any memory other than just this like, how could you have ever seen anything like this before if you're coming from where I'm coming from, which was like walking around with a single speaker boombox playing Jay Giles' band. And Gary Newman. human. <laughs> that's where I was before. And then there's everything that came after and which is just like a whole other thing. So that's how I remember this. And I don't know if any of that has any grounding in actual fact or truth. I, I think it probably does have a fair amount of grounding. I suspect that it, the first time that we hung out in that way seems to me to have been before 1985, like perhaps even 84, because by, by 85, that was the, the, summer where my parents left and went to England or somewhere and left me with the house and several hundred dollars and a pantry full of food Yes, for the better part of the summer, uh, which uh, about maybe 10 years ago, I was out to dinner with them and I raised my glass of wine and I just said, mom, dad, I'd like to thank you for the summer of 1985. Why? What went on there? They're like wondering what happened. That was the most legendary time. Can, can just imagine 
How old were you in the summer of 85, Chris? 16? Uh, yeah, yeah, six, 15. 16. So we were 15, yeah. 16 years old. Chris's parents went away for the whole summer. No, no adult supervision. No one was in charge of Chris. I know they left you basically enough money for you to go out and immediately spend all of it on a DX7 synthesizer as opposed to food. <laughs> $750 maybe? I don't know what yeah. that would have cost in that era. Yeah, something like that. I don't remember exactly, but I had to bust into, they left some emergency money under my mom's jewelry case. And they, they told me where that was after I told them that I was broke. <laughs> and I had to bust into that. Plus, remember people bringing food? Like Dan Markin, people were bringing canned food. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We used to all bring canned goods to feed Chris. Yeah, because he had he literally had no money. Uh, and we would bring canned goods. We were basically paying rent. Oh, yeah. I mean, we. I lived, I mean, I, I pretty much lived there as well that entire summer. Um, I don't even remember. What's funny to me is like, as parents now, like I have no idea what my mom knew or didn't know about what was going on at Chris's house that entire summer. Did she know that your parents were totally not there? Did she not know? There was a lot less like involvement and supervision at the time of a 15 or 16 year old child. This is the head of a pin magnified 100 times. What you see now is 200 micrograms of LSD. That's the full dose to send a normal adult on an eight to 12 hour trip more than enough to do the same for two to four teenagers. Roy, how the hell at 15 or 16 years old did you have a VHS of this? Like, this is what's insane to me now where everything is available to us at all times. How did you guys get into this? How did you even know this existed or get a copy of it? I'm pretty sure this was around the time when you could actually rent. I don't know if I owned it or rented it. I wanna say I did own it. Um, there were there was a video store that was in on Campbell Avenue in West Haven, and I think actually we went there in the Tempo, uh, Ford nineteen eighty five Ford Tempo, um, and we went there and we I don't I don't know what we got that time, but I think that's where I I got the video, um, and and speaking of parents going away, my mother would go away like after my father passed, she'd go all over the world. So she'd be in Australia. Right, blah, blah, right. Blah. So we'd have the house open. And, and I think that was one of the videos we had was, was the mm -hmm. Pompeii. I mean, we got other ones too. Um, I don't know. We might've gotten other music mm -hmm. ones or just like other ones. What was that one liquid sure. sky um, that we watched? Which David was, Gilmore live at the Hammersmith Odeon. Yes. Oh, the Hammersmith Odeon. Yes. Yes. That's right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Jody Lynn Scott. Yeah, there's some definite, definite brainage. <laughs> How did, did you two guys know each other well in 83, 84, 85 leading up to this beforehand? And how did you guys end up hanging out in this town? I think it was baseball. I think Chris and I played with a couple other guys, Dan D'Ambrosio, yep. um, Tom Stone. We were playing baseball and then it kind of evolved into somehow getting into <laughs> right. music like you just kind of <laughs> evolved um it, it evolved as we evolved but roy don't sell yourself short jace if you want to talk about seminal effects that events have had on people's lives and and you know friendships and interactions roy 
you played a huge role in all of us learning more about music. I mean, you were the man when it comes to familiarity with and and a broad and rich taste in rock and roll and and that i mean so you know jace you may have sort of been introduced to a different world having met the two of us but i gotta tell you roy i mean so just a little tiny bit of background i didn't listen to much rock and roll when i was a kid i have parents who are super into music but it was all irish folk scottish folk classical jazz show tunes there were you know music albums of african drums and the music of athens and all this crazy stuff that i lived listened to as a kid and pretty much other than like my brother and sister listening to dark side of the moon i just didn't listen to much contemporary music until you roy like you Open that door for me. Yeah, Roy was definitely the music master, the prog rock master. And also, I think one of the one of the best and most vivid memories I have of listening to music is in the red Ford Tempo that Roy used to have and drive. (laughs) And there was a night where we were driving and listening to songs from the big chair, the Tears for Feel album that came out in 85. Oh, yes. And now I think it's crucial for people to understand that at this point in time, like you didn't nobody liked any, no one like us liked anything that was on the radio, right? Like for the most part, this was an era of pop music on the radio. And a lot of our attitudes, I think, were default against anything we were being fed through like mainstream radio or, you know, we were counterculture in our little sort of sad, you know, middle-class, working-class West Haven way. But like Roy had... A, a real understanding and appreciation for how good that album was. And like, it was undeniably great, even though it was successful on the radio. I just always remember that dri- Whenever I hear that song, I, you driving the tempo and listening to <laughs> shout. Is you, I, I have zero musical talent in terms of playing. And if you guys remember correctly, I, this is true. And so I kind of channeled it over to like appreciation, maybe knowing a little bit about about the bands, yeah. And 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 I enjoy that. I I love stupid facts about something. And and I, you know, I apologize back then if I bombed you with this stuff. But I just, it was my thing, you know. And I, I like watch you guys actually play instruments. And I'm like, damn, I wish I could just, you know, do mm-hmm. something. But I, I envied you guys for being able to play, but I I, I enjoyed music well, all around, listening, watching. You worked at it damn so. hard, Roy. I mean, you took lessons. <laughs> I you took lessons for what was the name of that music school? Oh, John McCarthy. John, yeah. I think we would we all go to him. I think so. I took I drum Chris, lessons. There it was like a, a studio. Yeah. I think Chris, you yeah, took keyboard. Uh, yeah, my keyboard teacher, Grammatico, was his last <laughs> right. name. That's right. I started with guitar yeah. when he just had guitar. Then he opened up to drums yeah. and keys. Um, 
in his basement there. He's actually still making YouTube videos to te- really? teaching. And I, I watch him every now and again. He's got his uh, neon green guitar and he's showing you licks and all this stuff. It's unreal. Well, to it's Chris's great. point, though, I mean, you I know? think that, you know, certainly for me, Chris grew up in a musical family uh, and Chris's house was like kind of an Adams family slash Lord of the Rings type kind of wonderland in my mind, right? Like it had, right. it had Warrens and corners and pockets and rugs and art <laughs> and strange things everywhere. Total like brainage. Completely Total like the brainage. home of eccentrics in a great way. Like this was such a, yeah. the house itself was such a revelation to be able to live in. And it was in such an amazing location and like Chris, your whole situation with like the Peugeot car that your parents had that was like from another time itself, it was like Columbo <laughs> living and driving around. Just between us, sir. Mm-hmm. Somebody's following me. Now, who would be following a cop? Well, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Can't be the collection company, the car's paid for. You know, it was like, so from my sort of like pedestrian, like peripatetic pre, pre this year life, you know, these were not things that I had seen or been exposed to at all. And, and, and it's absolutely so, as Chris says, that like, Roy, your knowledge about and passion for music, you know, within a year or two from there, like I have a drum set, Chris has instruments, like we had we had instruments set up in Chris's parents' living room for most of that summer, right? And we just jam all the time. And then when we all lived together (laughs) some years after this uh, at 1600 Chapel Street, we similarly had instruments set up in the living room there. So this is all like really down to you, Roy. Like I don't, I would not have been exposed to this. I don't know where, I don't know who I would have befriended if I hadn't run into you you two guys that day. And in kind of the old school term, been like, tuned in and turned on to like what the hell was going on in this, this movie live at Pompeii, which also to think of Gilmore was watching it last night. He's 25 years old. Like it's, it's astounding. It's, it's insane. It's otherworldly to be able to do those things at such what I think of now is such an insanely young age. Yeah. It's admirable actually. I mean, you know, there are a lot of ways in which I wish I had gotten my act together a little earlier in life rather than sort of assuming that I had Mm -hmm. infinite time which of course we've now all discovered mm-hmm. we don't. <laughs> so, um, so I agree with you. It's, it, it's, it's always admirable to see people who not only have talent, but who put in the hard work to actually get it to go somewhere. Yeah. And where they were at the point of this crazy, <laughs> amazing, weird film, which manages to be so many things all at once is really impressive. And, you know, it has, uh, some of the tropes of like the spinal tap things that would come later, right? Like they're being asked all these questions. Do the machines take over? Are, they, are you too reliant on your machines? I don't think equipment could take over. We do rely on it a lot. I mean, we couldn't do what we do as we do it without it. We could still do a good entertaining musical show i suppose without it but all those things are down to how you control them and whether you're controlling them not the other way around it's just a question of using the tools that are available when they're available and more and more now there's all kinds of electronic goodies which are available for people like us to use if we can be bothered and we can be bothered 
It's all extensions of what's coming out of our heads. I mean, you've got to remember that it's, you've got to have it inside your head to be able to get it out at all anyway. And the, the equipment isn't actually thinking of what to do any of the time. It couldn't control itself. I think that their whole career, they were plagued with these sorts of like inane journalist questions about, you know, was it all like twiddling knobs in that era when like that wasn't what people thought a band was. But as you said last night, Roy, when you watch just the four of them jamming, that's what they're doing. Like they are grooving. even though they're not in a cave with a pict. reference for you Floyd heads out there. <laughs> you know, you also see in Live at Pompeii the seeds of their future woes. Yeah. I think we all probably noticed this over the years, whether you noticed it consciously or not. David Gilmore always seems like he's a very happy person. Yes. Happy, down to earth, has himself together. <laughs> Roger Waters is one of the grimmest, darkest, angriest, most messed up people I have ever seen in public life. Yes. And you can yeah. sort of see the seeds of it even in those early days. And they're talking mm -hmm. about the arguments that they have. And, you know, you know, in hindsight, that those were probably rooted in his problematic personality. I mean, it's weird because I, I just going to say, like, it's, it's weird with the Gilmore Waters camps. You know, I was all, to be honest with you, I was all in on Gilmore. Yeah, I was just it's the greatest thing. Waters is is like he's mm -hmm. angry, blah, blah, blah. But when going down the road, we see interviews, you see stuff happening with, the, you know, Gilmore's not allowing mm -hmm. Pink Floyd stuff on the websites, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, OK, maybe maybe I just, you know, should look more into the water mm -hmm. side of things, you know, just kind of see well, why, why is why is this happening? Is it both of them? Is it one of them doing it to the other? And it just, you know, comes down to stupid stuff like, you know, mm -hmm. money. And the name, and it's 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 sad, really. You know, and I think I mentioned this to you, Jason, when they went on tour on the, the mm -hmm. momentary lapse of reason. Um, you know, Waters was gone, but then they replaced him with like a hundred session musicians, seven, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, it's like okay, you know, are we going to see Gilmore laying down on the stage barefoot? <laughs> no, not this time. You know, so it, it's sad. It's like, you know, we love the, I love the concert that I saw, 
but but then seeing the Pompeii, it's like, wow, it's so organic. So like, this is them. This is the yeah. bare essence. And, you know, and, and seeing it, it's like, wow, I wish I could have seen that band, like the four piece. Yeah, you mentioned it. It's I think Chris is right. Like you can see the the seeds of the conflict. You also have, you know, knowing bands as we all do, like, you know, the Floyd is a different type of band, right? Especially coming out of the UK. These are not working class kids with, you know, that type of chip on their shoulder. These are like art school kids. These are private school kids who are making kind of art rock at the time and coming out of this swinging 60s psychedelic scene. So they're, they're whip smart, they're overeducated and probably underachieving in the eyes of their parents and their parents' peers, but they're also like transforming the popular culture as they're doing it. To see, to see Roger Waters in Live at Pompeii, who's just so imperious and uh, attacking and caustic. No, no, Steve, you're jolly good at your job and no way you could ever produce a record. So it was silly of you to try. No, rubbish. Oh, yeah, it's true. I mean, if you take a crappy enough group and they've only got 12 songs... What are we talking about? Oh, well, you're talking about producing works of art. I mean, or whatever, no. or Pink Floyd records. I mean, no, that's only not. about 0.01% no, of the market. There's plenty of other no, crap going on. No, we're not. We're not talking about that at all. We're talking about a record producer is somebody who is in charge of a recording session, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. And in order to be in charge of a recording session, you need to have a kind of minimum... Well, not minimal, you need to have a fairly extensive knowledge of what the equipment's about and what music is about and what rock and roll's about. Well, Steve knows what rock and roll's about. He's got no idea what the equipment's about and he's got very little idea in in terms of kind of technicalities what the music's about. But he of, well, know, he knows sure. what he likes. Right. Plenty of people have produced <clears throat> records on that basis. On, on it's a very successful record. Who? And, and then you're right to see Gilmore just be, be this beautiful, beatific smile on his face. It is, it's perhaps inevitable. And then you have like such a domineering, what sounds like a domineering personality in Waters, you know, who would then come on to exert more and more control over the music and become more and more dissatisfied with the experience of performing live, which is kind of why it's ironic that here we're only at metal. You know, Dark Side hasn't even come out yet, but like, it's such a strange choice to not have an audience at all. And it's such a brilliant one, it turns out. That was. But also such an ironic one for where things are going to go, where in the first wall tour, like they literally built a wall between themselves and the people that paid money to go see the show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I suspect that that would not have been the choice of the other members of the band. I mean, not to get into too much water, but honest to goodness. So like, I remember after... Uh, you know, like at some point in those same days, we rented the wall and watched the wall. I left the copy sitting there and my mother and sister watched it after like the next day or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they came to me and they were super duper concerned because they were like talking about what ends up being really obvious are some serious psychological problems for Roger Waters. I mean, he's got mommy issues. He's got daddy issues. He's got woman issues, sexual issues, uh, drug problems. You know, there's this like sort of layer of misogyny in the the animation, sort of a sexual misogyny. And you start to think the poor guy, you know, he's got, (laughs) he's got demons sort of like polymorphously (laughs) messed up. And, um, 
And I mean, that couldn't have been easy for the, no. the rest of the band. And it's funny, you know, Roy, you mentioned that you went on and that we watched um, the live eight performance, which is the last time the four original members of Pink Floyd performed together. in what was that? 2008, 2000. Yeah. I thought oh, it was so five. five. I could five, be yeah. wrong. And you, 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 you sent me right to it because you said, God, you can really kind of feel, you know, and some of this stuff, I think we, you know, we both know too much and too little about bands, right? Like you don't really know what's going on. You don't really know what's behind the scenes. I think Gilmore has the feeling in that show and what little I've been able to read about the lead up to live eight, you know, that was him asserting the control he could assert at that point in the relationship that he probably did not have the ability to assert during the band's existence. Because if you look at it and he said in that article I sent you, he determined the set list, which was decidedly not what Roger wanted to play. He determined the order. And, you know, the first two songs are Gilmore songs that he's singing. It's like, he's, he's confidently saying I'm in charge here. And then Roger gets his kind of song and a half, you know, uh, in the back half of the four song set to, to perform. And you're right that when they get together in the middle of the stage for the group hug, Roger has to kind of beckon Gilmore over, who's sort of fiddling with his knobs over here, doesn't really want to go do that part. <laughs> Roger's like, come on. And like, you can tell, I think Roger felt more, he seemed to be more moved by the experience than Gilmore was. And in the aftermath, and even and recently, even recently, Roger has said he's open to this because, of course, I mean, of all the bands in the world that have enough extant members to 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 play again, I mean, they're only what seventy five years old, which is really not that old in terms of classic rock touring acts. Right. I mean, they could do yep. this. Of course, you don't have Rick Wright, which that's a huge, huge component of this that wouldn't be there. But I mean, they could do this, and they could make. $500 million, $750 million, Easy. a billion dollars, Easy. two, yep. three year world tour, repackaged product. Oh, God, like yeah. there's a lot of money there, but of course they already have all the money in the world. I mean, how much money do you think they get each year just from dark side of the moon? Like incalculable right. tens of millions, I'm sure. So if you remove money as a motivating factor, then you kind of get down to the more interesting thing, which is why does anyone want to do anything? And if David Gilmore is living this idyllic life on a Sussex farm in England and can't really be bothered to put up with whatever he has to put up with. I guess he never wants to do it, but it sounds like Roger definitely would do it. And what's ironic is I went to a few of the Roger Water shows recently and I too, like you, Roy, I was always team Gilmore all the way. Rog is the evil one. He's the one that's fucking with everybody. And then of course I was sort of like, I think it was our friend Buck who was like, you got to go see Rog. I was like, I don't want to see that. He's like, no, you, you, it's so the opposite of what you think. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, it's so positive. It's so love. It's, I was like, Roger Waters, what? And so I went and saw it <laughs> right. and Roger was this like beaming font of like positivity and love and all this kind of stuff. And I was sort of like, whoa, that kind of fucked up with my narrative, you know, of like what I thought he was all about. And I still don't have any idea what he is or isn't all about or any of them are, but. Well, it sounds like he might've changed too. Maybe, maybe he has. I would assume so. I would assume so. But yeah, the, the Pompeii movie is, it's just, I just been laughing for like the last 24 hours because I'm just thinking of like watching this at 15 years old, 16 years old. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> you know, there's no overt drugginess. I mean, there's no drug use. There's no, there's none of the stuff of the wall, for example, that you're talking about, Chris, which is like has so much darkness. But 
Man, right. live at Pompeii is a mind blower. Like your mind will be blown, oh, God, whoever yeah. you are, if you watch yep. this movie. <laughs> and it still does. That's the thing that's great about it. I watched it. I'm like, Jesus, this is absolutely amazing. <laughs> I'm like, the, the, there's no crowd. There. Oh, I mean, I don't know much about cinematography or directing, but it seemed like he was brilliant. He did an okay job with that. I mean, um, like when they're they're zooming in slowly yes. to the band. I mean, that's fantastic. I loved it, and um, it just the whole thing was great. The title cards. Yeah. I mean, simple title <laughs> cards. It just like, oh yeah, this one. You know, like that sort of thing. It gets it gets you psyched, and it it was really well done. I thought, and and I was I was really happy to see it again. And and compared to other concert films, I mean, we've all seen concert films where it's great to see your band. They were go, they're kind of going through the motions. They're captive to the lights. They have to do things, that, you know, the way everything is should be playing. Like, okay, you got to be here when the lights are here, and blah blah blah. You can't really jam. Mm-hmm. You're no, there's no jamming involved. I mean, these guys are just like, you know. Gilmore uh, Waters is going to walk slowly through the dirt to bang a gong. That's that's great shit, you know. And um, and and that's yeah. You want that out of your rock, you know? Yeah, I mean that's what I feel rock and roll is. It's like the just the core essence, the band just mm-hmm. doing what they do. No politics, mm-hmm. no money. Just play the you. You're passionate about music to get to this point where you're going to play music because mm-hmm. you love it. And and if it gets to the point where you're just like arguing about stuff that really doesn't matter at that point, mm-hmm. like money. Do you think they need yeah. money? No. It's it's just it's just like just play your instrument, enjoy the music, and and you know that that from what I'm looking at Pompeii, that's what I see with this band, and that's the memory of Floyd mm-hmm. I like to, to have. You know, not the yeah, other BS. Yeah. That's what I like to see. You know, I had I had actually one thing I noticed. I had just watched I watched it this morning. Um, I had forgotten, or maybe I never really appreciated at the time, just how swingy Mick Mason is. Yes, totally. Like me too. It, like a lot of jazz. Me too. He's so in the pocket, in the groove, in a way that he never gets real credit for. He's kind of Ringo esque. Yep. Yeah. I mean, Jason and I were talking about that. Yeah. Jason and I were talking about that. I I had never, I watched, I was like, man, I should give this guy way more props because <laughs> he is amazing. And I never really did because when you think of Pink Floyd when you're younger, like, oh, Waters, Gilmore, but you don't think what keeps them together when you like, Richard Wright as well, you know, it's it, the texture. It's not, you know, overwhelmingly, you know, intricate, but he's making it. And it, and, and Mason's drumming is absolutely incredible. I mean, I re- I just loved watching him and it was great. I really loved it. Yeah, I agree. I think he, he that was a revelation for me watching it last night too. And yeah, that fabric of what he's doing. And also I watched, I watched it last night with headphones and I was picking up all these other layers of like Gilmore tracks that they must have put in after the fact because he's doing a lot live and they recorded live to an eight track in Pompeii. Uh, they may have added some layers, I'm not sure because I, I thought I heard some, some guitar instrumental stuff from Gilmore that was blowing my mind too. And, and Rick Wright, like I said, Rick Wright's, I never gave him the appreciation for his high harmony and how it fit in with Gilmore's voice and how essential that is to the sound in a way. Because you have this dominant personality in Waters, and then you have this sort of quietly, equally as dominant guitar god in Gilmore, who's just, that tone is insane. Like, there, no one has that tone. Like, it's still, it still has the power. I was watching videos last night of him, even, you know, 2016, 2017. And tone is in the fingers. It's not in the equipment. And he has that and always did. But those other two guys so key in this 
Is it possible that now that we're older, we notice subtleties a little bit better? Oh, sure. Absolutely. We were, we were probably not paying attention to the subtleties back. I think we were just like going, oh my God, what the fuck is that? What? That's so sick. <laughs> I think we uh, were screaming over the subtleties. <laughs> right. So speaking of Floyd and metal and music tastes, um, in that summer of 1985, um, we played a lot of LPs that had all been purchased by my mom at one yard sale, like at the, at the end of spring that year. You remember? So she, my mom, even though she wasn't into that music at all, she found this, like people were selling their entire album collection. She found, we had it all at once. And all of a sudden we had like Black Sabbath and, and a bunch of stuff that we'd never listened to before. But I wonder if you remember in the metal album, there was a, a comic book, a Pink Floyd comic book that came inside the album. Mm. And it had stories about <laughs> each one of them, but sort of fictionalized. So the only one I remember was that Roger Waters was a soccer player on a team called the Rovers. Okay, I remember that now. <laughs> and and so, so now check this out. Oh my God, you have the albums. Holy shit. Wow. Yeah, the bottom, the top shelf is my wife's albums. The bottom, the bottom shelf are, are basically those albums plus a few from when I was a kid. That's amazing. Um, but the, <laughs> but the um, that comic book isn't there anymore. And, and I suspect, I suspect it might be worth something. I mean, it would certainly. Probably oh, I'm sure. Worth more to me than it would be to 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 sell, but it's probably it's probably a fairly rare item, but I can't find it. I would think so. I would, you know what? I only, I remember that comic book only from the soccer player Rovers thing. For some reason, when you said that, I was like, I can kind of see it. Right. Raj of the Rovers was the title of Raj of the Rovers. Is that where we also that summer that your parents were away, which, you know, for a group of 15 or 16 year olds getting into music and many other things was just a gift that will, we will never be given again in our lives. We wore the hell out of Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Piper at the Gates of Dawn. one of the albums that your mom picked up or did you have that on your own no that's that's one of the ones and that and you remember we listened to black black sabbath's first album and yes. uh, volume <laughs> four over <laughs> and over, over again that's right and in their mix i think there was the nick mason solo album and rick wright solo albums I, yep. if I remember right yep. and i was like you are absolutely correct this is fantastic i used to get up <laughs> early and chris would, i think chris would still be sleeping i just go through the side door i'm like oh let yeah. me spin some tunes here at seven in the morning in the living room right <laughs> in the sleep. living room where the, where the hi-fi was set up <laughs> yep yep it was amazing yep. incredible yeah i do remember one particular I, I think you were listening to side one of uh black sabbath's first album Carlina and I absented ourselves for a little while. And when we came back, you had got 
lost in a piece of carpet. <laughs> like you were looking oh. at one section of carpet. Well, that was a mind-blowing carpet. I mean, to be fair. It was. Yeah, there yeah. were a lot of patterns like- going on in that carpet, man. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My God. It's funny. People were all in and out. Remember there was that guy, Jim? Jim. Who Jim Pe- as well? Pags? <laughs> Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Oh no! Now that you mentioned his name, he's gonna re- he's gonna he's gonna rise up like a phoenix into our lives again. Oh my god! You mean god. crouching Jim who used to Three crouch on chairs bags. like a like a gargoyle? Yeah. And his mom had. Yeah. Remember he had he collected like I had that thing on the wall. It was like ancient dental tools. I like what, what's happening here? That was like the only thing on his wall. And his mom had all the furniture was the all the furniture was covered <laughs> in plastic slip covers at his home. Yep. A strange person, Chris. Was I, don't know, I don't know where he came into your orbit, but I, I, I don't even think it was me. Like, I don't know either. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, let me just say day. this also because he didn't go to Hopkins. This he, is this is a thing I wanted to mention. He went to West no, Haven, thing I yeah. want to mention because one of the unique things about our high school time is we're not talking about three people who all went to the same high school. Like, we all went to three different high schools in the New Haven West Haven era. I unfortunately went to West Haven High School. Roy went to Notre Dame, which was a a boys Catholic, a boys only Catholic high school. And Chris went to Hopkins, which was and still is a very high quality private school in New Haven. And and then from that, there are probably ten or twelve other satellite schools that the larger scene that we then became a part of encompass from high schools in New Haven and Amity and Hamden and all these other kind of surrounding towns. It was one of the unique things about this time was there was, right. There was things coming from a lot of different places. And I think a lot of people in our era grew up and it's kind of their high school scene was centered around one school, but we didn't really have that. Like we didn't even go to the same school. I used to leave my school and go drive up to Hopkins and wait for Chris to get out of school. And then we would all go and meet everyone else at ECA which was a edu- educational center of the arts it was kind of like a, like a magnet art school where if you were accepted, you, you got out of your own crappy high school at like 1030 in the morning. And then you went to ECA and did actual cool shit. And then everybody hung out outside ECA and played hacky sack and smoked cigarettes and then went for coffee or went to Chuck's house or did all the other things that we did. That was just, that was ground zero. Uh, but before all that, yes, yeah. was this magical summer at Chris's parents' house where they went away and left him with some money to feed himself and the trust that he would survive, which is, which is amazing that your parents did that. Isn't it? Amazing. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. Again, I, I would not do that. I used to think my parents were overprotective until I met me. <laughs> You'd be like, bye mom, mom and I'll be back in two months. Yeah, well, we had no such parental involvement this summer of 1985. Roy, were you were you working a, a part time job this in this era that you recall? Did Orange Julius Lums? Uh, I might probably that job I had that year was at Chips oh, restaurant. Chips, right? And, I forgot uh, that you worked at Chips. Yeah. Oh my God! <laughs> Best pancakes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and like, and, and and like, so I had a little bit yeah. of scratch, and 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 that was good to have, absolutely, and. um you know, as I had access, my mom was pretty cool about using the, her vehicle mm-hmm. and um, we used it pretty good. Um, smoked in yeah. there, cigarettes, you know, but um, so it was. Yeah. What did your mother think was going on? I mean, 
I don't know. Isn't it funny now how you think that we were getting away with like smoking cigarettes and no one knew. And then now if you're around anyone who smokes a cigarette, like a mile away, you're like, Oh my God, that's so fucking obvious. What did we think? <laughs> right. right. I, I think she was going through my father passed recently. So she was going through her own yeah. things, traveling and, and kind of saying, Oh, I, mm-hmm. I gotta, you know, make sure I have Roy around and, and yeah. you know, I'll let him do what he wants, which was, yeah, mm-hmm. either way, good or bad. And, and, and I look at it, it's like, okay, I was, a, I was able to do things on my own, which now I could, I could do more on my mm-hmm. own. It's like, it's like, I wasn't in a bubble of being protected by someone. I was kind of like, I was kind of on my own. So that actually mm-hmm. taught me some life lessons, which was good um, in the long run. You know, uh, you know, I would have probably in hindsight, like my mother around a little more, but she was pretty lenient about things like, you know, having a party, having, you know, having people in the pool at midnight, that sort of thing. So, I mean, it was, it was, it was six of one half of another. And I, I mean, it was, it was a great, it was a bizarre summer thinking about it with Chris, you, you know, your parents gone and, you know, we can kind of go over to your house whenever we wanted to, we want to get out of our house. We go over there. There's tunes. I mean, that wreck, those records, whatever, however many it was, was like, just, but I'm like, I'm going to listen to this today, this today. And like, you know, Chris would still be sleeping and that's fine. I was up all (laughs) night. Just, I got to go over and listen to some tunes. I got to hear some music. And uh, Chris, you're very great. You were very, you know, I, we appreciate that. He was a gracious host. <laughs> he was, there was an open door policy. You just had to bring, just bring some canned goods and you were welcome to come in at any time. Yes. Right. right absolutely. So then I didn't lose more than 11 pounds. That's what I actually lost that summer was 11 pounds. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. You were pretty damn skinny by the end of that. Roy, um, how, how soon before this had your dad passed away? Uh, my dad passed in, in 83. So like maybe a year or two. Okay. So it was pretty, pretty damn close up on the heels of that. So it's interesting that in each of our own ways, we were in kind of untraditional family circumstances. You know, you, you're, you were dealing with the loss of your dad. It's such a, such a, it's a hard at any age, but I mean, to be 13, 14 years old. And I know you were very close to your dad and you guys had fishing in common. And that's always, that's, that's, I think still a big part of your life and maybe a connection to him. Would that be fair to say? Yes, absolutely. You know, and, and the thing is when I think about him, passing away when when he did that was kind of actually when i went full in music i kind of dropped out of sports a bit kind of dropped out of fishing a bit and i'm like in music like 100 i'm all in and and you know and and it's i kind of feel bad like kind of straying away from sports i love sports and i love fishing and i like I, for years and years i didn't want anything to do with those two things it was just music and you know years later i realized oh i we can have it all. We can enjoy everything. We don't have to just forget something because it, it's you, you think about someone passing or something bad happened around that time. It's like you can do these things that you enjoy. And, you know, right now, you know, it's all together and it's great. And, and it's 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 like I wouldn't have it any other way. And uh, but that, at that point, I think that's when I kind of went full on into music. And, you know, I had to know stupid stuff about music, not you know, I had to know who was in the band at this point and why did he leave? Why did he leave? And, and, well, he played bass also on that and on that song and, and like stuff like that. And, and I love that stuff. I, I still, still love that too. And, well, I think uh, it's probably, it's putting together <laughs> a story that's probably more comforting than the stories that were going on in our lives at the time, you know, like, absolutely. It's something, it's a diversion. I mean, in a way, thank God that we all had that, that we could come together at those times because 
that's what, you know, foundational young friendships are about, I think, is this a shared thing that's going on, but then also like collective things that the group kind of adopts and, and goes down these wormholes and rabbit holes. And I love thinking about how the hell did we find this stuff out? I mean, I remember pouring over albums for clues and when, when <laughs> live at Pompeii started, you know, it starts in black with the heartbeat, which goes on for like disconcertingly long enough that I checked the video settings to make sure that I had lost my picture. <laughs> I did that also. Absolutely. I'm like, what's I was like, going wait, on? This, the picture's not working, but I can hear the sound. And then I was like, oh, right. Like, this is what we were so into is like, we were convinced that Pink Floyd had put thought into all of these little mind blowing things. And you know what? They did. Like, they did put that thought into it. They did put thought into how they were going to blow your mind. Absolutely. Well, editing has also changed drastically. I mean, try watching a movie from the 70s now. Everything is so drawn out. It's like you don't need to see this guy walking down the street for 37 seconds. But there's also, I think there's a negative aspect to that, which is that movie makers and filmmakers and video makers have come to recognize that our attention spans have become drastically shortened. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And so... You know, I mean, Live at Pompeii starting out that way, it's supposed yes. to be meditative. It's supposed to get you into the groove. And we're just like, come on. Step it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the next chapter was, you know, Chris, I think you had, had when we all lived together in uh, 1600 Chapel Street in New Haven, that was, that was like all of our first non-college, non-apartment living situation for me. I took a year off before I went to college. So I didn't go to college until the fall of 1988, even though I graduated in the summer of 87. But Chris, I think you had already been to college for a year and come back. Is that true or no? Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. We lived together in New Haven after my first year. Okay. After your first year. And Roy, had you gone to college at that point as well? Yeah, I've done one year also. Okay. And I went to Maris in, in, right. in New York and uh, I just did one year. And then that's when we got together and uh, got this apartment in, uh, in New Haven. Yeah. And this insane apartment that we had in New Haven that became another version of the Chris parents' house situation <laughs> from three years previous, except now, you know, everybody had graduated high school, had done some college. And it was just a party house yeah. of the most insane with, degree. With our good friend, Shockey. Shockey Karras. <laughs> yes, who turns out to, in spite of the disrespect that we showed him as our, land, as our landlord at the time, turned out to be a very accomplished, well-respected Coptic Christian. Right. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, when he died, like 500 people showed up as his funeral. You know, we just thought he was kind of a cranky slumlord <laughs> all praise to shocky Karras for allowing three teenage boys to take the ground floor in, in a home that he actually owned and and pay rent to him i mean i don't know how we lived right. there for that year i don't know how we ate i don't know how we cooked anything i can't remember any of that stuff i just remember a lot of hanging out i remember the cats I remember the Jasons descending from Maine and living for what seemed like nine months uh, in our home. Uh, I remember Kinghorn living there. I mean, it was like one of those things where people just ended up living in and around us in this apartment while we were right. the three main renters, which was great. Well, you guys had the job in, uh, I don't know what, I can't remember exactly what you, CCAG. What it was. It was, uh, you worked from CCAG. Yes. Yep. So you worked from five, 
you know, the, it was a sweetest gig. You guys were like five to nine thirty, and then the you know everything was us. I'm working overnight at freaking Burger King cleaning fryers. I'm like so pissed that you guys have the best jobs ever. <laughs> okay, well, well, hold on, Chris. Chris had to commute to Hartford though, if I recall correctly. I don't know, that wasn't the sweetest job for him. That's right. I had the good job. <laughs> right. That was a long commute. That was a long commute. But I, I got to say, I, and I didn't want this to go unremarked, Roy, you worked bef- well before I did. You always mm-hmm. had a job. And, and so in my mind, you are the archetype <laughs> of work ethic. I mean, you said before, you're like, I always had money. But what you had more than anything else to me in the, in the dictionary next to work ethic is your picture. Seriously, <laughs> like psychologically, that had an effect on me. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Roy always had Roy always had the jobs. The Connecticut Post Mall giveth and taketh away. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Roy, I still have a scar. Yeah. I still have a scar on my arm from when I sliced my arm open on the Prince Plus, the Prince Plus framing <laughs> machine. So, so this this shop that popped up like the Connecticut Post Mall was like this Wonderland at the time. If you were a teenager, you could you could basically walk in and get employed like right away at any number yeah. of like as Roy said the genius of Orange Julius or Caldor yeah. where I worked and got fired from Record Town Record Mars. Town Prince Plus The Gap I worked at The Gap as well in the mall like you get fired right. from one job and you just would literally go next door and get hired again Yeah and exactly. Prince Plus I remember was run by this woman who I think was from Arkansas and her husband do you remember that Maud was that her name yeah. She was like a very nice woman. She had a Southern accent. And it was like, this was their little business that they were starting. And at the time, I don't know why, but it was like a moment when like posters were like a big deal. Like you could get all of these yeah. posters and we had to, we had to stock the posters and learn the skews. And then people would get them framed, which meant like these terrible yeah. plastic, we, we would shrink wrap, we would mount them onto foam board and then we would shrink right. wrap them in plastic. And then we would put these really cheap, gold and pl- silver frames around them. I don't even think wood was an option. I think it was just like these bags. No, it was all plastic. <laughs> yep. And I remember we got hired. We, they were actually just, they were opening, you know, getting ready to open. And they had two guys sitting, whoever, sitting at a table at the entrance looking to hire people. That's how it was at the mall. You know, you go, you, you could walk, walk along and get a like, job. Oh, it was great. Like, hey, it was how great. The old- they hired us instantly. They just hired us instantly. And it was, we're in. In fact, I remember that on one of the jobs that I had, when I had the job, I was a very clean cut, you know, 16 year old working at the Gap. And then. Is there anyone out there who still isn't clear about what doing drugs does? Okay, last time. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Through my friendship with the two of you, I remember about a year later, I ran into some people that I used to hang out with when I worked at The Gap. And by this point, I had a, I had a surplus army jacket with the dark side of the moon logo painted on the back. I had longer hair. I probably reeked of clove cigarettes and other smokable substances. <laughs> and I just remember the shock, like these two, these, these three people that I used to work with were just like, what happened to Jason Silo? Oh my God. <laughs> we, we ruined you essentially. That's right. That was, yeah, the plan. It was just like, it was just such a, it was like, 
and again, this is to the credit of my mom, who I, I don't remember ever giving me a hard time for looking any way or having any types of albums or clothes. Like she had, she had Sabbath volume four in her record collection. Yeah. She was pretty mellow. You know, she had, she had some cool groovy records too. So she never gave me a hard time, but I do remember visiting my dad or my dad coming to visit, pick me up in the Jimmy's of Sabin rock parking lot once for, a, for an extended visit. And, um, <clears throat> I remember I had my lime green Chevy Chevette at the time, which you might remember. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I had a Grateful Dead sticker on the back of it. And I just, I, I remember to this day, my, the look, um, my father was a very kind of, you know, up, upright high school principal educator type. And I remember the look on his face when he saw the bumper shirt and he went, Oh, Jason, not the Grateful Dead. <laughs> and I launched into this sort of like, yeah, but you don't get like how, you know, it's the blah, blah, blah. I mean, me trying to explain away, you know, my, my budding sort of love and appreciation for the Grateful Dead to my sort of stern. Not the Grateful not Dead. The Grateful Dead. <laughs> so it was like, as if there were other, like maybe the Floyd sticker would have been okay. Like I could get around that, but not the Grateful Dead. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I think the Grateful Dead have more of a reputation. I guess so. I guess so at the time. You know. So yeah, I'm just glad to be able to talk to you guys and, and just to relive this chapter of our lives, which also we lived through. Let's, let's give ourselves all a pat on the back that we're all still here and alive as well. Right. Because exactly. that's not a guarantee for everyone that we, we knew from this era either, you know? So to be here, to yeah. have families, to to be fulfilled is, is all a gift, man. And it's, it, it, for me, a lot of it really, really stems from this one specific time when, when you guys just expanded my horizons and I'm so grateful for that. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I'd like to add the, well, the concert pink, uh, Robert Plant. Was that that summer we went to see? Oh my God. Yes. At, was that at the Coliseum? That was at the Coliseum, and I want to say Joan Jett opened, I, I think. That was a Honey Dripper show, wasn't it? Or was that just a straight, yeah. It, yeah, yes. yeah, He exactly. He did his thing. But but I don't remember any Joan Jett. <laughs> he did, I he do did. not remember Joan Jett. I don't remember Joan Jett. Joan Jett opening for Robert Plant and the Honey Drippers? I, I think Joan Jett, yes, if I remember correctly. I defer to Roy's memory. He's probably right. <laughs> and I remember the show because he did his solo stuff. He wasn't doing Zeppelin. I don't think he did any Zeppelin, um, but he did his at that middle of the show after he did his solo stuff. In the middle of the show, that's when they changed the set and it came the Honey Drippers. He dressed yep. appropriately for the time, and they did their set, and it was great. It was, it, and then they went back and he he finished the show up with his regular solo set. If I remember correctly, I think that's how it rolled. What's that first Plant solo album? That's so good. Principle of Moments. Principle of Moments. I love that record. Big, big blog. I love that record. Yeah. And I like the honey, honey drippers is I'm in the mood for a melody, right? Right. Exactly. Yep. I love that song. That's a great song. And I, I think Jeff Beck played on that and it's really, really cool. Yeah. Now also, also kids listening, let me just point out if we wanted to go to a concert in those days. Okay. We didn't just go online. We didn't just go on a stub hub. Okay. 
everyone that you're seeing on this call spent time sleeping on the street in front of a ticket master, okay? In order to wake up <laughs> yep. and be in line the next morning to buy physical hard copy tickets for probably 1750 right. plus event fee from Jim Coplick exactly. and Shelly Finkel concerts at the, at the Ticketron <laughs> booth. That's how you went to concerts, kids, okay? Yep. That's right. Yep. So Roy, your memory of the, the plant honey drippers thing is accurate. I wonder if you guys remember Hey, do you remember who else we were there with? We were there with one other guy. Was it Chuck Hamlin? No, it was Al. Al was Al. Oh my God, I have no memory of that. Oh my God. Brain cells were harmed in the making of this podcast episode. (laughs) (laughs) As, As typical kids our age, we wanted to stand up for the concert, but the people who were behind us we're sort of like people in their forties or whatever. They're like us now. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. Sit down, you whippersnapper. <laughs> and they kept saying, "Sit down, sit down," and it was like, wow. it was an asshole. I oh, do remember. Man. I do remember. I think I got a shirt from the plant show. I think I remember getting the shirt. Yep. Was like a. That's nowadays you could just take the photo and post it on your Instagram. But back in the day, you had to get the shirt in order to have been at a concert. Had to have Otherwise absolutely. nobody knew. And just, and quickly with Al, since the names on our lips here, there was one point we were at Chris's house that summer of 85 and, and Pags, Jim Pag, Luca, and and they started, they sat down and they just did math problems for like hours. I'm like, they're doing like all this advanced trigonometry for like hours. I'm like, and they're like getting off. They're really enjoying it, which is great. It's good to be passionate about it. I just at that time, like you guys want to, you know, go outside, go swimming or something. No, we're good. We're going to keep going on this, uh, you know, E equals MC squared stuff for a couple more hours. And it was, it was unbelievable. I, I'd never seen anything like it. So I, I just had to throw that out there. <laughs> <laughs> was it Al Chris? Was it wasn't it one of the rumors of the time? We should. I'll, 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 I will not use his last name in the eventual editing of this podcast. But wasn't one of the rumors at the time that he scored a perfect sixteen hundred on his SATs while tripping LSD? Uh, no. Okay. So Al did get sixteen hundred on his SAT. Yeah. He's one of those Hopkins students that was like sixteen hundred plus. Like you know, there was a few others like that. There was somebody else whose name I won't mention, at Hopkins, who is rumored to have done that. Yeah. Uh, okay. And, and gotten a perfect score or just did that? Okay. You got, yeah. And, and got a perfect score, yeah. Another thing I want to give Roy credit for, you remember Roy's kitchen, right? Like, and that round table. Oh, yeah. One of the, like, seminal comedy moments of my life, because, again, another thing that kind of opened up for me, when you meet like-minded people and you, you, you plug into kind of this shared sensibility with music and the kind of counterculture things that we were into at the time. The other thing that I really remember was Roy was stealthily one of the funniest fucking people ever, like, and would, free, would bust <laughs> out things that are so subtle that I can't, like, I will tell the story, but it's not going to, it's not going to mean anything because they weren't in that room like the three of us. But I remember there was one time when Roy was so hyped up and he was like, came crashing into that little kitchen where we were like sitting around the table doing whatever we were doing in air quotes. And 
he was like, Jace, 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 Jace. Oh, hey, what are you doing later, man? There was a shift in tone from up here to, I, I still remember how hard I laughed and like the laughter, you know, the, 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 the warped kind of POV is what I'm so grateful for. Like everyone that we ever encountered, I feel sorry for at the time um, because driving around in Roy's car, and sort of interacting with this bizarre collection of people that were either our friends or acquaintances or hangers on. It, it just was so, so definitively, decisively a specific POV that kind of shaped so much stuff. And, the, and however we got into all the other stuff, like Roy, you're talking about wanting to know stuff about bands. Like, I don't even know how we figured all that stuff out back then. Like there's, there's it's very hard <laughs> to get information, you know, like books. <laughs> I, I used to go to the library and check books out. And, and like, I did it like so much. And like, I, I don't care. I'm Hendrix. I'll take it. Whatever, whatever it was, I had to know. Reading anything, was fundamental. Anything, you know, yeah. I, oh, what strings did you use on your, on your Strat that day? You know, stuff, stuff like that. Um, oh my God. And, and like no internet, of course. And it, I just said, Oh, I'll just go to the library. And I'd come home with like a stack of stuff. And I think we went to, we went to a lot of music stores, right? Like combing through records is a way to find out stuff and like zines, yep. you know, music. Right. I think we also got like music <laughs> magazines that had interviews with bands that you would read comb right. for clues. Rolling Stone or, Spandia. And there were stuff that was on late night TV, you know, MTV and other shows where they would, you know, you know, interviews and things like that. We found a way. I remember Night Flight. That was like a on USA on Friday, Saturdays. Night Flight was big. Yeah. That was night, big. Night yeah. Flight, that was it. Yeah. It was great. And also stuff, the yeah. um the Kirshner, Don Kirshner rock concerts. Canada is stirring musically. And one of the forerunners of Action from the North is the boogieing group, The Guess Who. They were the first Canadian group to sell a million singles with these eyes, and then followed with three more million-selling singles, Laughing, No Time, and American Woman. I personally consider The Guess Who an extraordinary band. America loves Canada's Guess Who. Who's the band? Is it the Descendants that wear the giant eyeballs? Oh, The Residents? Uh, that's The Residents. Residents. I remember coming across, like for some reason that was on you know, in like 84, 85, late at night in the Don Kirshner rock concert. And I remember just being like, what is this? Like, I, I guess I just missed that. Like, I don't have that experience anymore because you can know so much about everything before you ever encounter it now. But like seeing the residents right. and like through four guys with like huge eyeballs with no context given <laughs> and no way to find anything right. out about it. It's such a great experience, right? Like you're just watching this thing. You're like, Absolutely. what is this? And like, you can't find out what it is. There's uh, no impact now. You know, you know, you know this, mm -hmm. you know this about someone. You don't like, like Jason was saying, you see these guys with eyeballs, you're like, <laughs> hell yeah. And then, but now it's like, you already have a general idea before something mm -hmm. happens because it's been either you're bombarded mm -hmm. with it through news feeds or whatever. And it's, it's kind of sad because, you know, you, that moment of yeah. wonder is just, I love it. And it's, you can't get that right now. Or being at Chris's house and, and like, go, like, what album are we going to listen to? Right. Right. Like maybe you took the album off after a side. Right. But like you, that was the earliest you probably removed it. Like once the choice was made, you know, Magical Mystery Tour, I remember listening to that album a lot that summer. Like 
if we're gonna put Magical Mystery Tour on, chances are we're gonna listen to a whole of Magical Mystery Tour. You know, we're not gonna have a playlist with 600 songs that's gonna be playing through our remote speaker. I know this sounds a little bit like old man shakes fist at cloud, but you know, kids, listen, there were some, (laughs) there were some things that were better back in the day. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I caught myself recently. I had my own Amazon playlist. So good songs, right? Some of my favorite songs. And I caught myself not listening to the entirety of each one, like fast forwarding, like yeah. after three quarters of the way through. I mean, the attention span does. really does change. It really does. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's good in a way we didn't have much to do back then, except hang out. Like this is, I think what I'm talking about is just the, the colossal importance of just hanging out for hours. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it may, it may be important psychologically and it may be something that kids aren't getting to the same degree now. I mean, you know, my son, he's up there, he's, yeah. he's online gaming. So he's, you know, has mm-hmm. a ton of social interaction, but it's all super intense. It's like constant high stress, yes. first person shooter, like, you know, not just yeah. sort of going and chilling. So. Well, we had a lot of that, which I'm grateful for. Like, I mean, we just wandered the streets. I don't know what we were doing. Like we were just hanging out. Right. Well, we also wandered the mall. So you brought up the mall. Oh, is it the and mall? And that was kind of when, when we couldn't go to Roy's house, we couldn't went go to, to my mall. house. We That's went right. to the mall. Right. You know, I remember getting my ear pierced mm-hmm. there with Carlina. She brought me there and we both got piercing. And the arcade they had there, of course, that was a big. Right. Roy mentioned going to Wawa. So of course, when you're when you're yep. when you're young and engaging in various comestibles and listening to a lot of classic psychedelic rock, you're gonna get hungry and you're gonna wanna go to a place like Wawa, if people yeah. understand what I'm talking about when I say Wawa, which is a convenience store. But you know, you had to make a mission to go to the convenience store. And once there, you were confronted with a floodlit fluorescent wonderland of horrible choices. <laughs> Three pounds, three pounds of potato wedges. What you know? That's what we get. And Chris was famous for getting the largest, the largest soda available, and <laughs> with a with a demonic gleam in his elfin eyes, just wa- going down yeah. the line of the sodas available on the spigot and just making this monstrosity of sixty four fluid ounce sugar mashup soda creation, which now, you know, I go to like a fancy movie theater in New York City. They have that. They have it, and it's all like super styled. Like now, you can make your own soda combinations. I'm like, man, right? This guy did this like in 1985, and you guys, yeah, Coca Cola, thinks you're invented right. something here. And the mound of potato right. wedges. And the micro- I think of microwavable burritos, Chris, when I think about you a lot because that was a big go to for you. Yep. The Wawa microwavable beef burrito. <laughs> How many of those do you think you ate in your Absolutely. life? <laughs> Too many. 455 million. <laughs> oh my oh, God. I, I kept eating them, eating them until I discovered <laughs> gas station country fried steak in Montana. <laughs> then and you were, then, then you were, that was a whole other. <laughs> right. And look at him, Roy. He still looks <laughs> 16 years old. So you know what? I don't, I don't know. Maybe all this eating right stuff, the foundation he was built on, it doesn't seem to have had an effect. Yeah, that well, except that before this call, I like drank a smoothie made of like spinach and sure greens and carrot. <laughs> so okay, we've left all the we left the bad stuff behind, right? Oh yeah. All right, guys. Well, listen, this has been a blast. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to come on and share some of these memories. Uh, with at least me. I don't know if anyone else will find it interesting other than our immediate friends and family, but I don't really care. Uh, This one's for you guys, for myself. It's just a pleasure to see both of you. It's amazing. And I'm I'm just so glad that we were able to do it. Right back at you, son. 
Yeah, thank you, Jason. Thank you, guys. All right. It's really great to see, see you guys. Thank you. It's great to see you. Let's not let's let, let's uh, let's not go so long next time. Absolutely. As 20, 30 years. Everyone always says that, but <laughs> sounds like a plan. Yeah, this is easy to do. All right. Thank you guys. <laughs> Peace out. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye.